My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Apocalypse, I said, why you want to show up now? Just when the heart of my life was getting good. I'll give you one more chance. Walk on out of the door, yeah. Get your ass to getting where the getting is good. My fans and listeners, this is Aaron Odom coming to you again for another episode of Euripides Humanities. I have a fantastic guest today. We met about a year ago at the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. That is such a mouthful. Like you'd think they'd come up with something a little bit more abridged. Yeah. And and then my students all kept calling it cacactive. And I'm like, that doesn't work. Um, anyway... <laughs> My fans and listeners, this is Keely Anderson from Denver, Colorado. Hi, Keely. Hello, everybody. Hello. So uh, we got to know each other because you were running a very cool new thing. And I thought I'd let you talk about that a little bit to see if it's gaining any traction or, you know, how it might have worked this year going virtual. Well, I was running the improv competition. Um, in years past, I attended the conference both as a student and then returned uh, when I was working at my alma mater at community college. And over the past years, it's been like a one night kind of off the cuff event where students would just kind of like make teams up and just kind of play around and have a really fun night, which has always been great. I loved participating in it. But this last year when I met you, we... Um, decided to kind of expand it into more of an actual focus on the art. So we turned it into a week-long competition where teams can be pre-registered that have practiced and rehearsed. They have the vocabulary of long form, short form, and they can choose what they're doing with their team and kind of get judges' responses so that they get feedback and learn how to grow and gel. And they can learn from these wonderful people with improv backgrounds that we have, like you and some of our other judges. Right, That's right. It. You know, it's so fun to see like those kids when they are just figuring out their spark. You know, it's like, this is what I have to add to the world. And I'm 20. And I just figured this out. It's fun to kind of get, you know, professional opinion, too, instead of just, yeah, we're just farting around. <laughs> Yeah, well, because that's what I wanted to change, because we've always had fun on those evenings. But, you know, it's seen as one of the after parties, kind of just a fun time to mess around and be goofy. And there were those kids out there I knew that didn't know that this was an actual craft, an actual art form that they can learn about. And there's a history to know and names to learn and like things to practice and work together with. Right. Um, yeah, we, we did keep that one night off because that is, you know it's important to also just cut loose and have fun. But right. I knew that, kids that had no idea that this was like a thing that they could pursue and actually 
expand on. Right. So that's right. Why I wanted to blow it up for him. Right. Cause you know, I mean, Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell are getting older now and we'll need new ones. So. <laughs> so city if they don't know what second city is. Right. Exactly. So Keely, um, I mean, I know what you do, but what, what, uh, what else are you doing right now in the realm of theater and performing arts? Well, right now I am the uh, unofficial technical director for the community college of Denver. Um, I say unofficial because our department's in a huge transition that um, our chair, my boss, Nick Taylor, has been working really hard on for a really long time. So I do the technical director job and stuff. I just don't have the actual title yet because the job doesn't exist. Um, but we are working on oh. it. We're, it's, it was a really small, little, tiny baby department when Nick came in, and he's committed the last 10 years to really turning it into something. Right, right. I've seen that. Like, how many students do you have now in a community college? Well, uh, when we were in our prime, when we met, we had, I think, 50-some-odd declared majors. Oh, man. That is baller numbers, man. Holy cow. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, when I got there, I think I was one of five. Oof. Okay. So that's that's been some growth. Awesome. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we've all had our COVID experiences and we're all just kind of waiting for the clouds to part here a little bit, I think. You got anything coming up that uh, is on the other side of that tunnel? Yeah, several things. Um, obviously, our department kind of turtled up. My boss didn't see the value in trying to do social distanced shows. Um, mm -hmm. He and I both really believe in the intimacy of a live performance and felt that that would be compromised and inconsistent, which kind of negates the whole point. So what we're doing right now is actually a piece. It's called City Hawk Talk Live. We have a stand-up comedy professor, Chuck Roy. Um, he's infamous in the Denver stand-up comedy scene. He's written for uh, Will and Grace. Oh, wow. Uh, and yeah, he's he's been around and he's we're incredibly lucky to have him with us um so he's doing this kind of live zoom event where we bring in people from around ccd to just you know kind of do little interviews about student resources that they have that our students might not know about like the food pantry daca resources and things like that but we also find really fun people we had cal sheridan who was a student with me at ccd a while ago he is also very prominent in the stand-up comedy community but his thing is that he has cerebral palsy uh, oh. dude's hilarious though oh my goodness <laughs> like He's incredible. Um, so it was really cool to have him come on and do like a, I think he did a five or 10 minute set and absolutely killed it the entire time. Oh my God. So, that's awesome. Yeah. So we're just able to bring in all of these wonderful people from around Denver. And not only is it a good resource for our students, but it's just so much fun to like pop in at like seven o'clock on a Tuesday and just relax. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's been kind of funny to me. Like I'm, I'm still, you know, I mean, when we were in school, there was still that stigma of, well, you know, there's no, there's hardly a career in the arts at all. And I'm like, you know, if there's one thing that this last year has shown us with all of your binge watching and the upswing in like the creation of podcasts, you can't tell me that artists aren't needed in this society. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, more than ever, we need human connection and genuine understanding. And nobody does that better than artists. There we are. There we are. 
So awesome. That sounds really cool. Like, I love that idea of just like a resourcing out and everything. Cause you know, how many, how many students are like, I'm going to go be an actor. I'm going to go be on TV and film and, and everything. And they have no idea. Like I could be totally happy the rest of my life being a box office manager and, <laughs> or, you know, designing posters for shows. And that's my job. That's, that's totally, totally awesome. I love that. So I have a fun story today. I'm really pleased that you wanted to be part of this podcast because you were very complimentary of the format and I'm very happy that you were. Now from a technical background, this is probably going to be right up your alley. You might even be able to school me on some things as tech is not necessarily my forte, but boy, do I enjoy this story. So we'll just go ahead and start off. Uh, We're going to go back quite a ways here. Keely, what do you know about the development of towns in the early Middle Ages in Europe? Um, (laughs) Why don't you ask me a really easy question to start, (laughs) Erin? I mean, I know in Elizabethan times when Shakespeare was writing, there was a good side of the river and a bad side of the river. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. then um, I think that's when patronage came into the arts and that mm-hmm. became a status symbol. And um, I think that's about the extent of my knowledge there. Mm, wonderful. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I might be able to teach you a few things here then. That's all right. I don't mind that. So I don't know. As you may recall, in the early Middle Ages, feudalism was the social system, which meant that people would de- be devoted to certain tracts of lands known as fiefs. F-I-E-F-S, for their livelihoods. One of the lowest classes of people in in feudalism was the serf, the S-E-R-F, who basically did the manual labor for a fief. Mm -hmm. I I love talking about this because these don't sound like actual titles. I'm a serf. I live on a fief. Now, is it fief or fife? Ooh. Because I've always heard fife. Maybe it is fife. I'm going to change it to fife now. (laughs) <laughs> I've, I've heard fiefdom, fiefdom. I'm going to say fiefs. Okay. I feel like on the same playing field. I don't know who's right. Eh, you're, you're the guest. Poetic license. Now, like I said, the serfs were the people who did the manual labor. But serfs began to exhibit aptitudes for different types of skills and thus would be expected to do that skill over other skills more and more often. Mm-hmm. So as serfs got more gifted in their specific skill sets, centers of trade between fiefs, fiefs, Good Lord. Since there's a trade between fives became necessary, as certain fives would develop better products than others based on the skill levels of their serfs. Certainly, larger cities did exist, and trade would generally be expected there, but supply and demand required more smaller markets in order for fives to succeed. Makes sense. See? There we go. However, another development aided in the resurgence of towns. The lack of sanitation. Mm -hmm. Frankly... There was no established systemic method of cleaning refuse out of a building. People still prepared meals and had to relieve their bowels every now and then. Mm-hmm. So naturally, what is one to do with the refuse in the house? Throw it outside, of course. Mm-hmm. Yep. Got to get it going. <laughs> yep. Because it was understood that the sheer number of free-roaming animals, like pigs and dogs and goats, would eat any trash for meal preparation or mm-hmm. whatever was emptied from chamber pots. And we still ate them anyway. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Yes. Oh, 
And if the animals didn't take care of it, don't worry. Eventually, we'll have a good rain and everything will just be washed away. It'll be fine. Yeah, it just goes away. Right, right, right. It's totally gone and will not come back to hurt us at all. Just like COVID. Yep. Yep. So it wasn't entirely unusual for any given person to be surprised by a deluge of filth passing by a window. See, I've always wondered about what that would be like. (laughs) I'm genuinely worried about this. Like, is there an etiquette to like call out before or like, do you hold on to it and wait for your like shitty neighbor to come by or I've genuinely wondered about like what the etiquette of that is. (laughs) Is there, is there a call word? You just go. Yeah. It's well, whose responsibility is that? Is it the dumper or the person walking by the window? You exactly. could walk you could walk further away from the window. Exactly. Like what are the rules? <laughs> I'm walking by. Don't throw your shit. So to sum it up, medieval life stunk. And that's fine. That was the understanding. But of course, Medical science was not as advanced then as it is today, so there was no collective understanding of how this level of accumulated filth could actually cause significant and frequent widespread illness. The sheer number of plagues that affected medieval populations resulted in something of a labor shortage on on fiefs due to the number of deaths. Mm, See, there you go. (laughs) Where's Larry? Oh, he died. Why? And of course, those who were the most affected by these plagues would be the working classes, and in this case, the serfs. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, no one really extrapolated a practical cause and effect scenario here. They just saw people getting sick. No, they pissed off the gods again. Uh, That's it. What did you do last night? What did you think about yesterday? Did you see her ankles? That (laughs) strumpet. No one got syphilis again. (laughs) This string of plagues actually allowed the serfs to negotiate with their higher-ups for better living and working conditions. This was another contributing factor to serfs being even more skilled in their specific trades, which allowed them to become part of industry-specific training systems known as guilds. Are you familiar Mm. with guilds? I do know about guilds. Okay. And the guilds usually practiced in towns or cities. Guilds generally focused on specific industries. So, for example, there was a guild for carpentry, there was a guild for baking, there was a guild for weaving and textiles, etc., etc. Yet, another factor in the growth of towns was, frankly, the uncertainty of feudal life, as there were so many things that could either kill a person or condemn their souls. Dun, dun, dun. So people would often abandon their fives to seek out living arrangements near local castles and basically more people, like their safety in numbers from that kind of stuff, right? Death and the supernatural. Yeah, usually. Mm-hmm. The grounds around these castles would start to resemble villages simply due to the number of homes that would spring up, and thus eventually a town would be born. Just like that. Boo! Just add water. Up overnight. But castles were not the only buildings around which a town would spring up. Oh. Churches also yeah. became foundations for a lot of townships. Mm-hmm. This is understandable because most of civilized European society from the fourth century onwards centered around Christian morality and the pursuit of a heavenly afterlife. Thus, in the Middle Ages, churches were basically the spot to be. I mean, we have a place called the church here in Denver. That's a pretty good spot nowadays. Is it? Yeah. Do they, they do a lot of churchy things there? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. 
<laughs> it was a church, though. It is an actual church. Oh, okay. Okay. It's not a church anymore. Well, maybe. I mean. Yeah. This is that yeah. same kind of thing, right? People might see God there in different stories. fashions. Yeah. Yeah. So how does any of this relate to theater yet? <laughs> Good question, Aaron. Thanks for rambling for a while. Christians in the Roman era despised the practice of theater, mainly due to the nature of Roman theater with all its sexual exploits and sinful conquests, but also because the reputation of Roman theater artists was less than favorable. That of Dionysus? Ooh! Mm, fertility? Mm -mm -mm. No. Roman Christians gained even more sway over public opinion when one night in the year 312 CE, Emperor Constantine had a dream about Jesus, and less than a year later made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, he's just like, yep, this is the one. No, 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 no! I saw it! I swear to God! He came to me and told me, so now it's a thing. This definitely happened not just inside my head. I, I had a dream about a roast pig, and I didn't get one of those. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, with newfound respect, the Roman Christians started expressing their opinions publicly and condemning those practices that they abhorred. So let's just say that Roman Catholics discouraged the practice of theater as much as they could. And when Rome fell in 410 CE, Christians scattered all over the continent and established churches where they could. So back to church being entertainment. Really, it was about the only thing to do in medieval life besides work, sleep, and die. So anything that would allow a moment's break was welcome. Not only that, as we, I've alluded to, or we've alluded to in prior episodes, Catholic Mass can be considered decidedly theatrical, especially in those days. There were rituals of significant gravity that were supposed to bring people closer to their God, and clergy began to dress in more and more elegant attire. And let's not forget the specific costuming of monks and nuns. Mm-hmm. I mean, them hats, man. The taller the hat, the closer to God. Exactly. <laughs> this is so modest. Nothing to see. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Stand oh, off! My gold filigree in my fur trim is under a peasant's foot. You are damned now. Okay, the body that God gave me is shameful, so I have to hide all of it <coughs> the entire time. That's, that's right. Don't look at it. That reminds me, wasn't it Kenneth Starr who was like, he was interrogating Bill Clinton in his impeachment trial, and somewhere along the line, he gave an interview where he admitted, in like a, a, a top magazine, it was like Newsweek or Time or something, that he yeah. admitted he had never seen himself naked. Yep. I think that was... <laughs> Not even like by accident, like you're getting out of the shower and there you go. Oh, God! It is really important in some uh, religions and some uh, sub-branches of religions. You know, you the Mormons have their um, undergarment. Right. That always right. keep on them on the time. Um, I know right. a few little Eastern, not Middle Eastern, Eastern religions mm. all mm -hmm. kind of have that same belief where, you know, you're, yeah, like the, it's a genuine thing. Yeah, but like, I mean, really when, when you take a bath even, do you just like, ah, oh, God. Don't look. No, you just rinse like five times. Just, just rinse sure. like five times. Just don't. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure everything's clean. I'm sure. Yeah, you can't see, but like you're just. <laughs> so no. let's get back to this. 
So church service was basically designed so that the standard churchgoer was to feel utterly cathartic after every mass attended, especially after the ritual of communion. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. for those unfamiliar with it, communion is meant for parishioners to reflect upon the sacrifice Jesus made for them by recounting the story of the Last Supper. In the ritual, the clergy blesses the bread and wine the parishioners are then to consume. But in the blessing, it is understood that the bread and wine have literally transubstantiated into Christ's body and blood, respectively, just as they did in the story of the Last Supper, despite maintaining their physical qualities of being simply bread and wine. But you just said literally. Oh, It damn. literally turned into blood and body of Christ. But it look, it just looks like it. It just looks like yeah. it. It's and just, tastes like it and feels yeah. like it. And smells so it like might it. not have been wine. Right. It might have, you know. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's a horrible it's thing to think. Like, blood, like they were harvesting <laughs> Christ's blood and just like synthesizing it and making more and more. It's like, we're going to need a lot of this. Yeah. They, <laughs> had that. they had that technology in the first. <laughs> Love it. Now, this is actually really important to understand as we talk about theater later. Mm-hmm. The aim was for the parishioners belief to be absolute. They had to believe that the bread and wine was actually the body and blood of Christ or the ritual was incomplete and thus the desired effect could not happen. Mm -hmm. And if you can't have your weekly dose of Jesus, you just lost some points toward getting into heaven. You know, like every magic spell ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, that that makes it sound like counting calories for Weight Watchers. <laughs> I ate my body and blood. That's 75. That's 75. I'm getting closer. It got blessed first, so that's an extra 10 calories oh, off. God, yes. Awesome. <laughs> As I mentioned before, some remnants of theater practice still showed up in church, even though that might not have been the original intent. The church mass began to develop new methods of presenting information to keep parishioners engaged. One such development was the singing of songs known as tropes. Oh. Yeah. oh. <laughs> that just a lot of dots. See where you're going oh. here. Mind blown. Now, the tropes, this is when a choir would break into sections and seem to answer each other in song as something of a dialogue, much like an ancient Greek chorus. <laughs> and much as Thespis did in the Greek theater by having one member just simply step away from the chorus and have a dialogue with it, arguably creating what we today know as theater, the church more or less reinvented theater inside its walls in a similar fashion. Mm-hmm. You know where I'm going here now? I have a few, I have like three different tangents to go off in my head right now. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Now this is a funny one because the first half of this thing is exposition tonight. So (laughs) that's terrible playwriting. (laughs) You know better. You know better. Did you include a deus ex? No. Who raised you? Now, most historians agree that the starting pistol of theater's resurgence was the Quem Quiritus trope around 925 CE. This trope told the story of the three Marys going to Jesus' sepulcher to prepare his body for burial after the crucifixion. When they arrive, there's an angel at the tomb who asks, Whom do you seek? In Latin, Quem Quiritus. 
They respond that they are to anoint the body of their Lord, Jesus Christ. The angel responds that Jesus is alive and has left the tomb as he predicted, and that the women should go out and pronounce it to the people. Boom. The end. That's it. Four lines of dialogue. Yep. That's what I heard in church. And (laughs) just those four. Literally. (laughs) Well, glad we got dressed up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, because that's where we, we, that's when we all stand up, open the book to the number, and kind of try to sing the song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Whom do you seek? That guy. He's not here because he told you he wouldn't be. Bye. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do enjoy that little piece, though, where they say, as he predicted. Yeah. <laughs> he, he said it. Yeah. Like, you shouldn't be surprised, God. <laughs> He like had bobs out of him. <laughs> like Fine. he told you, he coming. He ain't dead. He knew he ain't dead. He coming, and nobody's gonna believe it. So y'all better tell him so they're ready. <laughs> and they're all freaking out because they're just like, "Oh, it's an angel!" Ah! Right? Because yeah. like you know they're supposed to. They don't look like you know you go through the Bible and they're just like a big ball of eyeballs with like twenty wings. <laughs> You never heard this. Like they actually went through the original texts and like, this is how <laughs> angel is described. It's not humanoid. It's like this completely other thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I didn't this, know that. Yeah. Like it's like millions of eyeballs and you know, three wings on each side. Like it, they're insane. <laughs> Cause but that's and why people would be freaking out. That's comforting. This is the emissary of my Lord. Mm. This this big ball of eyeballs with wings on it. Anyway, this trope became a huge hit. Soon, churches all over Europe were developing their own versions of the Quimquertus trope, but more still accompanied the dialogue with rituals that could be considered the first special effects of medieval theater. And that's the story we're telling today. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. And it's a little giddy right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought you might be excited about this. Okay. Now, the correct procedure of this ritual was recorded by Ethelwald, who was the Bishop of Winchester somewhere between 965 and 975 CE. So as you recall, this thing has been going on for 40 to 50 years before somebody decided to write it down. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the mass population of Christianity and everybody else in that day and age was, in fact, illiterate. That's right. So it's like, we could write this down, but who's reading it? So here's the, pre- here's the procedure. Basically, four priests or monks would dress up, one in an alb, which is that long white gown that you just put over everything else. And the others would dress in headdresses to suggest that they were women. Yeah, that's yep. good. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you know, real women. Now, the priest in the alb would busy himself about the church as though attending to little things and then secretly disappear so he could reappear later as the angel. Then, during a specific point in the service, the other members would wander around with their thuribles filled with incense as though they are looking for something and then end up at the set piece that is Jesus' sepulcher. The thuribles basically represented the perfumed oils 
that would anoint the body for, of Jesus for burial. Mm-hmm. So, a level of sensory realism was employed to connect the parishioners, or in this case, the audience, to the mm-hmm. story to make it seem somewhat more valid. I mean, I can't argue against that. That's what we do today. Right? <laughs> to a degree. Like, I still remember, like, going to the old, old Universal Studios and doing the Backlot Tram Tour and, to, and, and enjoying the King Kong part of it before it burned to the ground because his breath smelled like bananas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, you'd smell this fake smoke and, and gunpowder going off, and you're like, but bananas. <laughs> I mean, I remember going to a Rugrats movie I saw in theater once. Couldn't tell you which one. Mm -hmm. But uh, part of the promotion was they gave you a little card that had different numbers. It was a scratch and sniff. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, like the numbers would show up on the screen. So you'd have to scratch it and sniff it with what was happening in the movie. Do you remember any of the smells? I think one of them might have actually been bananas. (laughs) That's it. I don't know if we just implanted it, but like that was like the coolest thing to me as a kid. I freaked out. I'm like, this is this is the future of cinema. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, the using the thoroughbles with nice smelling things only enhance the credibility of the story, and the people can engage in the same level of belief as they would in communion. Because remember, these people understood the smell of filth, and when something didn't smell rotten, it was worth taking note. That was a religious experience. (laughs) My God, not everything smells like rotten shit. It's not feces, God, is that you? (laughs) Did you wash yourself this month? (laughs) He has clean water. (laughs) He is blessed. He is blessed. So, where wonderful smells occurred, that's where magic happened. Now... I'm going to span over a few centuries of history here for the intents of this episode. So over the next couple hundred years, as theater made its way not only out of the church, but basically out of the church's direct control, sensory realism became the order of the day. Vernacular religious plays came into being, not necessarily ritualized mass, but not wholly for entertainment purposes. Vernacular plays still emphasize Christian morality, but through entertaining measures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, some developments that were made in those couple hundred years should be mentioned here as they did make their way to the vernacular stage. In most churches that practice theater as part of the Mass, usually the acting area off to the left of the stage from the audience perspective was known as the heavens. Mm. Mm. And it might be converted from a choir loft or could have been built directly into the architecture of the building. Regardless, you had to go up to get there. Naturally. Then... Usually the area to the right of the stage would be hell, as it might descend into the basement of the church or or the crypt. Through the stories told on stage, characters would either enter the gates of heaven or be cast into the pits of hell. Mm -hmm. Left or right. (laughs) Pursued by bear. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting because he does actually exit left, which would be the audience's right. Oh, see, there you go. In episode two, I talk about, hey, Shakespeare actually was kind of a genius. He knew what he was doing. Oh, yeah. I have a whole Marlowe tangent happening right in that exact same period, too. Did you, did you listen to my episode two? I did. <laughs> All right. Now, in addition, certain areas of the church would be staged or staged as or even built into the church with small 3D backdrops to tell certain parts of the stories from the Bible. 
These little buildings or backdrops became known as mansions. In some cases, actors could get inside them, but they were usually pretty small. Generally, the actors would just begin and end their part of the stories in front of them and act out most of the story wandering out into the audience. So that was just kind of the convention they invented. Like, I'm starting over here. So you can see that I am telling the story of Moses leaving Egypt. But I'm going to walk over here and tell the rest of it. And then I'll end back over there so you know when the story's done. It works. I understand that. Mm -hmm. So heaven, hell, and mansions. These are three elements that made their way into the type of theater I'm going to talk about for the rest of the episode. Cycle plays, also known as mystery plays. Yes. (laughs) You are so nice to me. (laughs) Oh. Now, over that couple hundred years I skipped over, here are the highlights. The aim of theater was to get people to more fully believe the credibility of stories of the Bible and help them ultimately lead better lives, or at least lives that could get them into heaven when all was said and done. One of the heavily ambitious ways this developed was to write a series of plays that would tell the entirety of the Old Testament all the way to the beginning of the New Testament and finish up with Jesus' death and resurrection. These plays got the moniker Cycle Plays as they went through that whole cycle. Yup. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) We're only to Exodus and the first one took an hour. Yeah, it's a lot to take on. Uh, Yes, yes. Now, cycle plays were usually put on around holidays or annual feasts and were generally named for the towns in which they were performed. So you had things like the York cycle and the Wakefield cycle. And as we alluded to in prior episodes, most of these plays weren't great. No. (laughs) Nope. The comedy was pretty trite and usually would end in someone getting beaten or killed or embarrassed for their own good. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Basically, they told the story, but I would imagine they sacrificed quality for quantity, given the number of stories in a cycle they had to tell. All right, we got to get through four of them tonight. Let's go. (laughs) Gotta go, gotta go. Right? Now, some sources actually suggest that the York cycle included around 48 individual plays. Oh, goodness. (laughs) That's a real full season, man. (laughs) And we'll do it again next year. They get done, they're like, wow, that took a while. And then they set up, it's like, hey, we're doing the cycle play again. Oh, shit. Okay, I'll sit down. (laughs) Now, cycle plays would be performed on a very long stage. Now, again, on the audience's far left, heaven could be seen. And on the far left, hell. But we'll get into that later. In between were a series of mansions or simply blank settings that could be used to tell a lot of stories. However... It was the subtle manipulation of these three items that made medieval theater wholly worth watching. This is where a new role in theater production developed. One French text refers to this person as, I I do terrible French, the conducteur de secrets. Oui, les, les, I can do this. Okay, do it. Les conducteurs de secrets. See, way better than I could. Roughly translated into English as... The Conductor of Secrets. Yes. Or The Master of Secrets. This person was behind the scenes and planned all of the sensory excitements that would make the story come alive for the audience. And I'll just say it again for solidification. If the play could give the audience a total sensory experience, then it was believed that the audience would more fully embrace the story and thus believe the divine work within... 
it was the job of the master of secrets to make sure that the audience got what they came for. Which was anything but sewage. Right. <laughs> uh, not necessarily. Uh, we'll get into that in a moment, though. Mm-hmm. And as some historians have noted, the more permanent a stage could be, the more elaborate the master of secrets could become with his inventions. Mm-hmm. The master of secrets could build hidden mechanical devices for use at any specific time in the play or dig tunnels under the stage so actors could disappear and then reappear somewhere else. One story was how an actor would enter a mansion that represented a temple that would be burned to the ground as part of the story. So the actor would go in, shut the door, the mansion would literally be lit on fire, but the actor would be safe because he has slipped through a trap door in the floor and escaped through an underground tunnel. Mm, tricky. I know. <laughs> They're like, oh, God, he really burned in there. Oh, no. <laughs> We burned the vagrants outside. I actually read that a lot of fire effects like these uh, actually led to a lot of fires in villages because... No. No. Really? I mean, it's like my TD brain was like, do you have somebody backstage with a bucket of water watching? No. Why? Of course not. So pretty much meant to happen. God will take care of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, he's telling us that something went wrong with the play. Dude, just mad. <laughs> now, pretty much anything that could be imagined, the master of secrets would invent a way to make it work. Mm-hmm. So I'll start to describe the secrets with the heavens. Usually on the left side of the stage from the audience perspective, it was raised somewhat from the general stage floor. And the heavens often were decorated with shiny trinkets and materials with soft textures. Mm-hmm. Often the heavens had pleasant smells emitting from them, much like the thurables in the Quimquertus trope. The heavens would also have a band, either hidden or in plain view, playing beautiful, glorious music. It would play fanfares when spirits came down or returned, or when a soul had earned its redemption. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But how does one get to the heavens? Well, in less permanent stages, it would often just be stairs or a ladder. But for more permanent stages, there was a counterweight crane that was used. This crane would be behind the set, much like the mechany in ancient Greek theater, but it could also be built into the set and camouflaged to look like part of the set and then could hoist an actor up to or down from the heavens at given times. (laughs) What's going through your head on that one? Because I can see the mechanism and I can see how it would work on stage and I just know exactly how mind-blowing it would be if you don't know how to read or anything. Right, right. Like it just, I mean, just magically happens by actual magic. Right. I mean, isn't that what David Blaine did with that, like, standing on the sidewalk and, and levitating trick? Yep. And everybody's like, oh, my God! How did he do that? <laughs> Why is it always English as a second language people that he picks on? Like, come over here, look at my trick. You are witch! We will burn you, gypsy. They do that. We're like, the church is like, look at this amazing thing we did. And then a theater kid's over here like, hey, I came up with the same idea. And then the church is like, you, burn, go down. (laughs) Not okay. (laughs) Like the pure hypocrisy of the church versus theater throughout Mm. history just amazes me. I'm like, it's the exact same thing. Why Mm -hmm. can't we just admit we're the same people? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, really, in the Western world, it came out of religious ritual and was reborn in the church. Yeah. And you should really, I'm not going to go on a huge thing, but this turning point of medieval Christianity and religion owning theater and theater being outlawed. And when Marlowe wrote Faustus. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how he wrote Faustus and how he made it look like he's complying with the church's parameters of like, you know, mm. Faustus did bad and worked with the devil, so he went to hell. But then he snuck in things of Renaissance thought, like the demon presenting the structure of the cosmos as fact. Wait, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop you right there. I'm just saying. Mm. He he was he was really smart about that play. And it mm-hmm. ties very well with this whole church versus theater. Mm-hmm. 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 Now, mm-hmm. I'm going to get back to uh, the uh, the counterweight crane here. Yes. Because in my research, and you might be able to tell me otherwise, costuming was not super elaborate in this time. So most likely an actor playing an angel or a spirit would visibly have a rope around the waist or the shoulders. Mm-hmm. And the actor would be lifted off the floor to dangle like a pinata (laughs) until coming to the place where they were supposed to be lifted. (laughs) Probably didn't have very sophisticated understandings of like weight distribution. They might have known some good knots at that point because sailors... But yeah, they probably were just like kind of dangling there trying to be super serious and ethereal when you know you can hear the wood creaking behind them to move them. I now ascend to the heaven. <laughs> and the whole audience is like, wow, this is amazing. <gasps> He's off the ground. Anything's so perfect. <laughs> and because they know it's theater, because they know it's theater, they're not sitting there going, witch! But, but it's Christian theater, so it's the good kind, it's which fine. is fine. fine. Now, in some cases, the, the crane would lift a decorated box or a cart, and it became known as the cloud. And several people could fit inside it very easily if needed. A little bit of an easier answer to like, let's just wrap a rope around George and we'll sling him over there. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. I got a box. (laughs) So we put George and George and Philip and fling them all at once. All in the box. Very economical. (laughs) Better get two ropes. Now... I'm just getting started on secrets. Oh, good. Some stories required quite a bit of planning in order to be pulled off successfully. One such was the story of Noah. Ah, yes. Oh, man. I mean, can you imagine? Like, I already see the gears turning on you right now. You're like, okay, so how would we do this? Okay. Now, most of us know the basic story of Noah. He is told by God that he is to build an enormous boat called an ark and then herd two of every animal onto the boat. The reason for this is that God is setting a reboot. God will trigger an enormous rainstorm that will cause a flood and basically kill all life on earth besides Noah and his family and the animals they will gather. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, in one report of this play... When Noah announces, uh, well, when he relays the news of the storm to his family, water dripped off the rooftops of the mansions. Kind of cool. The Master of Secrets devised a system where water was stored in an undisclosed amount of rain barrels. And a, a network of gutters and spouts was invented so that a constant stream of rain would pour over the mansions. 
Well, that was the solution that I had in my head. I'm like, okay, let's that, like runners on top of the mansion so it falls out. But also, why are the rain barrels undisclosed in amount? Oh, you know why? Because it is said that the device was so effective that the rain would pour for a solid five minutes. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was, was going to be a lot longer than that. Did you? <laughs> I mean, like, they had to be particular about when this happened, because once it started, you had to wait for all the rain to stop, and there was no way to stop it, and it would go for days, so you had to do that as the last one, and then give everybody a long weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Five whole minutes. Well, I think of, that, to me, seems like a long time on stage, definitely from being in an actor standpoint, where it's like, okay, stand in one place for five minutes. I mean, yeah, but, like, isn't, wasn't the flood, like... 10 years or something but but for the purposes of the story like i mean it was all manual they just had a guy like very slowly pouring into a funnel backstage and it just would go out and drip and drip and then he's like hand me hand me another barrel this one's almost empty right but like i still don't understand why they had to be so secretive about how many rain barrels like would it be so bad (laughs) if you knew that there was three (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just think I just think they didn't count. They just went, that's a lot of barrels. <laughs> now, in fact, water effects were a huge part of keeping a medieval audience in awe. Here's a quote. Stationary semi-permanent stages also allowed water tanks, much as Hollywood sound stages have used in our time. The most extreme water tank was at Bourges. Is that how I say it? Bourges? B-O-U-R-G-E-S? Bourges? Bourges, sure. Where the whole stage area was made ready to receive water pumped in via underground pipes. But even a half, even a large half stage water tank allowed Peter to walk on water and the prow of Noah's Ark to see rising water or Jesus to sit in a real boat while he taught people on the beach. Golly. Shut up. It's a whole boat. Yes. <laughs> Is that allowed? This was all outside by this point. So it's just like, oh, wow. Ah! And he's kind of walking on. <laughs> well, they've never seen it before. So they're like, oh. <laughs> you doing it. This might be the real Jesus. <laughs> he's been here this whole time in Sussex. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. They'll burn us. It'll go to Sussex's head if you don't do that. <laughs> oh, boy. Now, not only that, thunder sounds would often be used during the storm scenes of the Noah story. They were either drums or sometimes large barrels filled with rocks that would either be shaken or tossed about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was simple effects like these that made stories much more believable to medieval theater audiences. Oh, I forgot to include this in here. They actually would use, like, sheets of copper like yeah. very thin pressed sheets of copper and just shake them. Yeah, I mean, it's tried and true technique. It really does work so good. There you go. Yeah. A thousand years later. However, it was another aspect of medieval theatrical spectacle that required not so much invention, but rather logistics. Basically anything having to do with hell or blood and gore. If you were a dog, your ears would have perked up right there. <laughs> I mean, it's not too difficult to find a story in the Bible that involves blood spewing forth from the souls of the wicked or their eyes were pierced. 
frankly, there's a lot of violent stuff in the Bible, and people loved to see it. Yeah. Another type of play that became popular was the saint's play, in which the story of a saint was told, often including the gory demise of such saints. Mm-hmm. Now, the sainthood is not necessarily mutually synonymous with martyrdom. No. But often it was. <laughs> so here's another quote. Saint Denis, French, in the long French play devoted to him, was progressively whipped, racked, tormented on a red-hot grill, savaged by wild animals, steeped in a furnace, crucified, beheaded, and disemboweled, with his bowels shown bursting out of his belly. Yeah, that sounds French. Saint Barbara, in another play, was stripped naked, bound to a stake, beaten and burnt, had her breasts cut off, was rolled in a nail-studded barrel, and dragged over a mountain by her hair before being executed. And they did this all on stage? All on stage. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I just saw the fangs grow a little bit there. Good job. (laughs) So... How does one come up with props and set pieces like these that will be convincing enough to inspire an audience? Actual flesh. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. What could be better for real gore than actual gore? Mm -hmm. Quote, fake blood was definitely in use. Concealed on the tip of a spear or knife to gush out on contact when Abel or Jesus was struck, however lightly in reality. It wasn't hard to find spare blood, since butchering animals was a way of life. The butcher could easily give you a bladder full of blood that you could conceal in a fake head, so when the executioner cut off a head, the real actor's head was concealed, while the mock head now dripped real blood. This worked for other forms of torture. The real actor didn't need to bleed or be in pain as long as the copious red stuff flowed, end quote. That one I already knew, too. They would put a pig bladder into uh, Caesar's robes. Mm-hmm. And then he'd go down and it would, because the Shakespearean stages were raked, it would go oh, yeah. all, all the way to the front. And then the groundlings would actually clamor to the front so they could like get their hands on it. Oh, I like, love it. Was a, it was a literal bloodbath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One example I love uh, about this is the moment when the crown of thorns is placed on Jesus before his crucifixion. The story states that Jesus bled profusely from the wounds made by the crown. Well, evidence suggests that the prop crown would be immersed in pig's or sheep's blood offstage and would be placed on Jesus in such a way that the audience would not be able to see the dripping blood until it was streaming down the actor's face. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) what actor at that point is going like, but really, how am I feeling? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, the spikes are still very much there. They're just not actually going in. It's probably right. still like, a, oh, I just hope it doesn't get in my eye. <laughs> but, but they probably didn't even think about that. Probably didn't even think about it. Because if it made it more, maybe he'd start crying and weeping. Ah, yeah. And just make terrible grimaces with his face because his eyes are being stung with dead animal blood. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of Jesus and the crucifixion. It's a great way to start a conversation. Always. A wonderful device was used for the moment when Jesus' side was pierced by a spear. Uh, Spoiler alert, sorry. This device was known as a trebuchet. Did you say trebuchet? I said trebuchet. Like the cousin to the catapult? Hold on. Now, unlike that siege engine that we might associate the term with, the French word trebuchet means to turn about. 
Oh. So the siege engine turns around, but this. Yeah. Oh, okay. How this was used in the uh, in the medieval plays, the trebuchet was something of a a little turntable built into the floor of the stage. Oh. Ooh. How this was used in the crucifixion story would be that the actor playing Jesus would be air quotes nailed to the cross, and at the moment the, for the spear piercing, some distraction would occur at some other part of the stage, and the actor playing Jesus would be spun about. So that a dummy nailed to the cross would replace him. <laughs> and nobody noticed? <laughs> I'm sure they did. Or <laughs> Jesus is like, look over there. And they're like, what? And then he's like. <laughs> <laughs> you turned really oh, God, pale. Horrible. What happened to him in that 0.5 seconds? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, this dummy would be filled with blood and tripe so that when Jesus was pierced, all manner of rotting innards would come pouring out the hole with a significant amount of blood to give just the right touch to that crucial part of the story. <laughs> Excessive intestines and like five different hearts and just collapsing all over the stage. And they're like, wow, it's so real. They really killed that thing. <laughs> Before you explain trebuchet in my head, I'm like, maybe they just used a tiny little one to, like, catapult a squid. <laughs> <laughs> just hit him in the chest. No, I was describing this to my son, who's now 13. And he's like, you mean they, like, flung him? I'm like, no, no, they didn't. They didn't. He's like, but, Dad, the trebuchet is the Yetus Maximus. <laughs> and I had to explain. I'm calling like, it from now on. Yetus Maximus. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, here we go. But perhaps the most memorable and researched element of medieval special effects was the hell mouth. As mentioned earlier, the portion of the stage that was representative of hell usually settled at the most extreme right of the stage from the audience's perspective. It usually resembled the face of an animal, sometimes a fish or a bear or a pig, or sometimes just the face of a made up monster. No matter what, it was contorted into a terrifying grimace. I always love seeing the one that's just like a big fish mouth. It's like, are we just consistently telling Pinocchio? Is that what's going on? <laughs> this is the only play that ever happens here. <laughs> Little wooden boy. Enjoy it. Sometimes we do Moby Dick. It's about Jesus? <laughs> Didn't Jesus mm. like fish? <laughs> well, he knew how to make a lot of it. Mm. Now, as implied in the name, The mouth of the creature could open and shut mechanically so that souls that needed to be swallowed up for their sins had a place to go. Excellent. Out of the hell mouth came an entire company of devils and demons, actors dressed in costumes made of black leather, accompanied by an absolute cacophony of invented sounds as though being vomited forth from a realm of eternal torture. I love this. I love that I'm recording this in video. I just see you like doing a little tiny pleased golf clap. (laughs) Those are my people. (laughs) Exactly. Now, here's a fun little description of what could be expected from a hellmouth. The aimless, wordless screaming of onstage demons and the howls from the damned mixed with crashing and banging of pots and pans, the grating, painful opposite of the dulcet harmonies of heaven. Mm. Mm-hmm. I always enjoyed the idea, and it, it, it comes several times in the Bible, 
like when somebody is so racked with grief that they are beating their breast and gnashing their teeth. Mm. <laughs> it's just the idea of somebody like totally King Konging it and just grinding their teeth. And, <laughs> That's the only image that puts into my head. On it, it kind of makes me think of Marlon Brando's like Stella, <laughs> which, by the way, has my favorite stage direction ever written. Because you know Williams wrote all of his own, mm-hmm. and before he screams that Stella, it says Stanley with heaven splitting violence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it is related, right? Right. Probably the same <laughs> stage direction the demons got. <laughs> Evan splitting violence. Okay, so yeah, they're screaming a bunch, and like little kids running around the kitchen are banging pots and pans. That's what you can hear. Kong, 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 kong. How are you Doesn't... even supposed to hear heaven at this point? Well, you know, I mean, it was a point where you're going, yeah, yeah, you earned your way to that place. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, this doesn't sound too bad, maybe a little irritating. But I did say that sensory perception was vital. Thus, other embellishments were employed. I'm guessing it's a scent of some sort? Quote, All the nasty smells concentrated in different parts of the city. Warm excrement from the tanners treating hides, urine from the dyers' wares, guts and blood from the butchers, and the stench and fester and sepsis by hospitals wafted around the hellmouth. Lovely. (laughs) Set it all on fire (laughs) all right um what don't we have uh ooh, my cousin lost a leg and we still have it go get it smear it up and down yes excellent how can we instill the fear of hell literal burning flesh (laughs) my wife gave birth and we've still got some on the bed perfect perfect smear it if you want to wear it, that's fine. Now, the Hellmouth also employed the use of trapdoors and gunpowder, as it became readily available in the mid-1300s. Flames could be shot out on cue, and the trapdoor in the floor of the Hellmouth could be above a chamber where the Master of Secrets could fill that chamber with dark smoke, and the fires would not necessarily be burning just wood. Tar would also be burned to not only add to the darkness of the smoke, but the smells invading the senses of the audience. Mix it all. Burning tar, urine, rotten blood, rotten organic matter of all kinds. That's hell for you. I mean, you're not wrong. (laughs) I was experiencing all of that. I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is it. I made it. There was one piece of research I found where they're like, and this may have been why the seats nearer heaven might have been more expensive. Mm. (laughs) Well, you know, patronage was important. Mm -hmm. You Mm got to sell the tickets if you can overcharge and get the fancy people in there. It had more validity. Right, because nobody was really carrying around the perfumed handkerchiefs or anything at that point. They're just full on. (sighs) Wow! (laughs) (sighs) But one of the constants of the universe is change. By the mid-1500s, biblical stories were targeted by supporters of the Protestant Reformation in order to root out any allegiance to the Catholic Church. Eventually, religious plays were banned, but it was their contribution and spectacle that allowed them to make their mark in theater history. 
Mm-hmm. Now, as I've alluded to several times through this episode, it was sensory perception that made these stories true for the audience. Sure, they might not have had the technology that exists today to enrapture an audience and make them suspend their disbelief even further. But again, it was this audience's affinity to believe that made these secrets come alive. Even today, we may allow for small moments of doubt when seeing special effects on stage, but mainly for the magic they will inspire. So, that tiny element of Aristotle's observations that we know as spectacle seems to be an indelible part of the theater arts. Even when things weren't as flashy, spectacle seems to always have been used to allow the willing disbeliever the opportunity to believe in the reality of what is being seen or possibly in the existence of the magical. And that's the story for today. Uh, that's your sound clip. Nice. Thought I'd end strong with the hell mouth and the stinking. Oh, yeah. No, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm wearing white, but it's all trash on the inside. It is. Like, there was actually a whole section I had to cut out about bird training. Really? When, when Noah sent off the dove to go look for dry land and it would bring back the olive branch, right? Yeah. They trained right. an actual bird? In some cases, yes, it was suggested. In other cases, it was like a fishing line with a bird on the end of it thrown over the set. <laughs> so, like, Noah would have it on his finger. He's like, go, bird. And it would just go, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, buddy. And then I hear the bird coming. <laughs> Ah, here's the bird. <laughs> An olive branch. We are saved. I don't know. This finally rebooted the world. This era of history to me, there are several of them that just seem like no matter how goofy they sound or the, how poorly told the tales are, mm -hmm. it's like a collective sigh of relief after years of nothing. Yeah. At least... 500 years of sorry no fun well because that's the thing that pisses me off is like because <laughs> again like theater is something so hum like entrenched in humanity that we can't not have it like just mm -hmm. that basic performance and storytelling you know like we were doing that before we had language you know so there's no way we're never gonna not do theater Right. But yeah, like the church used it for their storytelling because people couldn't just read the Bible, so they had to be told the Bible. Mm -hmm. And then other people were like, well, I'm making up stories over here. And the church is like, that's evil. And the exact same thing we're doing, so we're allowed to do it, and you're not. So get over there. Right. And maybe we'll let you live. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, even in some places, they've never even gotten rid of the laws that say that people who work in theater can't be buried on sacred ground. <laughs> Those laws still exist in places because, like, of course, they're Ooh. not being So nobody's like, eh, maybe we should get well, rid of them. You know, I'm not trying to target a, a specific faith or anything like that, but um, it's my understanding through all of my studies in theater history that there is no specific practice of theater in the Muslim faith because they just go, well, that's kind of like a false representation of living. So like, that's, that's not something you should do. And I, well, that at least I understand. That's a standpoint I can, I can see where you're just arbitrarily saying one type is good. That type is not. Yeah. I think it was the prosecution of the others is what made it such a thing. Mm -hmm. 
I don't understand why what we do is, has ever been considered evil. You know, like maybe mm-hmm. crass or, uh, you know, tasteless. We can definitely do that. Like Commedia dell'arte was definitely not for nope. the upper class. It's not, it's <laughs> no. not, it's not something to condemn you to hellfire for all eternity. Well, I think it was in the, the episode on the deuce. We're talking about, you know, vice and everything and how on that area of 42nd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues, you know, while all a lot of the other Broadway theaters had converted to movie houses, burlesque was still a big thing down there. And really, burlesque, when you look at it, like... A form of it actually exists in one of the most popular television shows on earth right now, RuPaul's Drag Race. Yep. It's fun. I'm like, I'm looking at these beautiful women who are not women. And I know that. I know that going into this, and they are making me so excited about life and enjoyment Mm -hmm. and feeling comfortable with myself. Who cares if they tell a dirty joke every now and then? Exactly. And, like, there's so much that theater does about respecting our history. Not even up front. It's not something we have to, like, force. But, you know, like, knowing all these old tips and tricks of, like, yes, most tech crews used to be sailors because of their knot tying. Right. And that's why it's bad luck to whistle in a theater because you might accidentally tell them in code to drop a sandbag on your head. <laughs> That, that's literally it. That's why it's bad luck to whistle in a theater because that's how they used to communicate about what they were doing, setting up rigging. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like, actually uh, superstitions is on my list at some point uh, as an episode coming up because there are just so so many. I mean, I we can them. we can talk about the Scottish play and the ghost light, fine, but there's a lot more than that. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. It's it's just interesting. Like, I think, you know, I I don't personally feel like I persecute anybody for their faith. Anything that's going to help you be like a stronger, more helpful and, and generous person in society, mm-hmm. do it. Oh, yeah. I don't have to do it the same way you do it. Mm-mm. You don't have to do it the way I do it. But <laughs> we're all just trying to get through this life together. And if this last year has taught us anything, it's that. There's a major like philosophical tenet I got and it was from one of the strangest places, stand-up comedy. It was about a guy not being able to understand why people were bodybuilders. Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, I get it. I can see that. But it was part of his joke. And he's like, you know, to me, it seems like those are the people that have never asked themselves the yes or no question, am I gay? (laughs) Because every now and then you have to be challenged that way. You have to, like, feel something. and, And if you don't honestly take the time to ask yourself that question about whatever it is yeah. and answer honestly with a yes or no answer, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So in that one, it's like, am I gay? And you ask yourself, and sometimes the answer is no, I'm not. Yeah. Or maybe it's, yeah, I am. Yeah. Or and it's now, like, kind of? I don't know. A little bit, sometimes. Maybe I'm not anything. Exactly. And like, those questions are so important, especially with religion. Right. I don't know if you know this, but my mom's a minister. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. So like, I grew up going to church. Uh, You know, she had all kinds of religious texts, like the Quran and every version of the Bible ever. Nice. Right. She really did encourage that, like, questioning like your faith should stand up to questioning. You should be right. able to ask those questions. Is this right? Is this for me? 
do I believe this and have that answer be yes. Instead of that, like blind, like, Oh no, it's just right. Right. I don't think about it. I don't question it. If I question it, I'm a bad person. Like, no, you should be able to question it and then say yes. Yeah. I would love for somebody to have seen that crucifixion scene where the actor has the crown of thorns and is bleeding all down his face and nailed to the cross. And well, he can't beat his breast at that point because his hands are nailed, but he's gnashing his teeth, obviously. And something distracts him. He's spun around and there's a dummy there and they stab him. And I just want that one guy to stand up and go, that's fake. Right. <laughs> like The exact opposite. Like, you know, when actors play Iago and the audience feels compelled. Mm. Like, have you ever heard this? Like, I think actors I have been shot playing Iago because the audience feels so complicit in his conniving that they feel an impl- like they've gotten up to stop him from doing what he's going to do. Oh, I love that. So I want to see that in that context where they're about to like stab Jesus and like do the trick, but somebody's like so invested. They're like, no, save him. (laughs) I'll go. (laughs) If that did it for people, a bladder of pig's blood underneath your arm that would spew out and squirt the front row. Oh yeah. And I mean, I know I've learned doing tech that it is easy to mask a lot of mistakes. (laughs) You can, it's like the Jaws rule. Like, you know, if your special effect is not going the way you want it to go, throw some smoke on it, throw a bright light. That poorly built monster or set piece will be convincing because, I mean, the audience wants to buy in. Right. No, unless you're doing a really experimental Brechtian piece, they're going to, you know, they want to get sucked in. Right. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, there's all those high minded collegiate discussions we can have on those theories and deviations and reasons for deviation and all that. But like, you know, they want to be taken on the story. Right. If you do enough. They're going to want to jump in and they will fill those blanks in themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know it was just a dummy, but it spilled actual guts. <laughs> I still think of like just a gratuitous amount of organs that can <laughs> possibly come out of one single human. Like a pig's heart that's like this big. <laughs> the audience like, oh my God. They accident- accidentally like put some brains in there or something. And like, I didn't think that was in there. Oh, they're like, I don't know what's inside of us. <laughs> I don't know what organs are or what they look like or how many there should be. They're just seeing goop. What mattered was right. the smell and the texture and the splop. Exactly. I'm like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, we are always going for the whole experience, making it as believable as possible. You can't fault them for that. No. Well, there we go. Medieval secrets. Woo! Love it. Got a good one. All right. Keely, thanks so much for being my guest tonight. I really appreciate it. So much fun. And for those of you listening, this has been Aaron Odom with Trident Theater for Euripides Humanities. And we'll see you again in a couple weeks. Thanks. Hey friends, this is your host Aaron Odom coming at you again. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode, and if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you pick this podcast up, or go ahead and like, share, subscribe, all the cool stuff you do with podcasts. We are Trident Theater, that's T-H-E-A-T-R-E. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at our website, www.tridenttheater.com. Once again, this is Aaron Odom. And we try to get a new episode out every two weeks, so hope to see you again in a fortnight. Avant-a, 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 avant-a.
Apocalypse, is it why you want to show up? 